Amen. Well, um, I wanted to start off this morning with what I consider to be one of the most graphic displays of hatred and anger that we have seen in the last few years. And I'm talking about the Pulse um, nightclub shooting. I'm sure many of us can't forget the image uh, uh, when the Pulse nightclub was, was shot up. And uh, obviously the, sh- the shooter was a guy named Omar Mateen. He was a, a security guard, and he, he killed 49 people. He wounded another 58, and this was the largest mass shooting in U.S. history. And the media immediately labeled this a terrorist attack. Because if you recall, um, Omar made a phone call in the bathroom right before the shooting, and he said, I'm doing this for ISIS, I'm doing this because America's bombing you know, Muslim territories, and he, he pledged allegiance to Allah. And so everyone immediately said, this is a terrorist attack. But what's very interesting is, as police and FBI began to investigate this terrible crime, some details began to emerge that turned the entire case on its head. For example, um, Omar Mateen's ex-wife said he was, quote, not a very religious person. Then one of the investigators, a, a terrorism expert, a guy named Ali Sufan, he said, there's absolutely no indication whatsoever that this guy was affiliated with ISIS at all. He never pledged allegiance to ISIS. He was never in contact with ISIS. And he said, listen, ISIS is getting a whole lot of credit for something they really weren't a part of just because this guy pledged allegiance to ISIS. And so there appeared to be no, absolutely no connection whatsoever between Omar and ISIS at all. But that wasn't the the, the most ironic twist in the story. What was very ironic was as they began to dive into this, this massacre and they began talking to people that went to the Pulse nightclub, it was discovered that Omar Mateen frequently visited the Pulse nightclub. In fact, people said he went there for like three years before the attack. And he wasn't just scoping the place out. In fact, some, some guy named Ares, that's his nickname, Ares, he said sometimes he would go over in the corner and sit and drink by himself, and other times he would get so drunk that he was loud and belligerent. In fact, people said sometimes he would get so loud he'd start like yelling things about his father and have to be escorted off the property out of this nightclub. So all these things started coming out about Omar, and, and then it was discovered that he went to other gay nightclubs. And then it was discovered he was actually on a, like a gay dating app on his phone. He would actually connect with other gay men on this application. And so this, this whole other life came out that Omar Mateen was living that nobody knew about, not even his wife knew about it. And so slowly this picture began to emerge uh, of a young man that was greatly conflicted, greatly conflicted. And the reason is this, Omar was raised in an extremely strict Muslim household where he was taught that homosexuality is not only a sin, but also that homosexuals should be punished with death. His father was a supporter of ISIS and the Taliban, and if you know anything about the Islamic State, they actually execute gay men publicly. They kill them. It's not tolerated. And that's why after this massacre, Omar Mateen's own dad got on TV and he basically said... And I quote, God will punish those involved in homosexuality, and this is not an issue that humans should deal with. Right after the massacre, this guy's father says that. So Omar is raised in this like radical Muslim house where homosexuality is punishable with death. It's extremely shameful. 
And yet Omar finds himself struggling with the very thing that will alienate him from his father, his family, his community. He finds himself struggling, and I, and I use the word struggling because this guy got married twice. He had kids. You can see a guy who's in a battle. He, he's battling against this, this same-sex attraction, and he went to great lengths to hide it. And eventually, his mind gave way, and this immense pressure, it, it just got to him. And so the question is this, what drove Omar Mateen to kill 49 people? And the answer is this, it's shame. Shame. This was an attack that was fueled by shame and repression. Omar felt this deep, deep shame, and in order to compensate for his feelings of emptiness and unworthiness and, and, and not feeling human, because of what he struggled with, he decided to kill the very source that caused him the greatest shame, which was the nightclub he so enjoyed to go to. And I know, this sounds completely foreign to us. We're like, how in the world does shame drive a person to do something like this? Listen, there is a very clear connection between shame and rage. Very clear connection. You know, in the Bible, there's a story. Um, it's in 2 Second, Second Samuel. It's about King David. And uh, King David has a bunch of kids. He has this one son named Amnon. And Amnon fell in love with his own sister. Uh, her name was Tamar. And uh, obviously, Amnon falls in love with Tamar. That's his sister. He can't have her because it's his sister. That's weird. It's, it's taboo. It's, it's, it's forbidden. But his passion so overtook him that Amnon actually end up, ended up raping his own sister. This is, this is in the Bible. This is legit, right? It's in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And check this out. Amnon pretends like he's sick in his bed, and he asks his sister Tamar, he says, bring the food into the chamber, bring it into my bedroom, bring it into my bed, that I might eat from your hand, I'm not feeling well, I'm sick, please help me. And Tamar took the cakes she had made, brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother, but when she brought them near him, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not to be done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing, shameful thing. And as for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you'd be like one of those outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and he laid with her. He actually raped his own sister. Now, here's the ironic thing that happens. He rapes his sister, and what happens afterward is extremely strange, I think, to us. Because what happens is, he gets extremely mad at her. He actually blows up on her. Look what it says. Right after he rapes her, it says, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. So great the hatred with which he had hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. It's like, what in the world's going on here? He raped her. He felt extremely shameful and guilty over what he had done. And because she was the source of his shame, he said, get out from my presence right now. I don't want to even look at you. And so he basically sent her out, go get up, get away from me. And she's shamed, he's shamed. There's a very clear, as you can see, connection between shame and rage. 
Many times the sources of our anger and our angry explosions upon other people are related in some way to feelings of inadequacy, insecurity. We operate with this deficit mentality and we end up Mount St. Helensing on people all day long. And that's exactly what's happening in this, in this situation from 2 Samuel 13. And listen, this is a very common thing that happens in life. In fact, psychologists have written a whole lot about the connection between shame and rage. You know, one such psychologist, a guy named Dave Decker, he said this. He said, shame can lead to a whole host of compulsive, addictive, irresponsible, and demoralizing attitudes and behaviors. Check this out. Skip down. One primary indicator that shame is present in many people's lives is explosive anger. It leads to destructive and self-defeating attitudes or abusive actions towards themselves or others. And this is the money verse here. This guy studies a lot about anger and rage. Listen to this. When people basically feel okay about themselves, they do not feel a need to hurt and demean themselves or those around them. That is so key, guys, for us, I think. I think a lot of times in churches, we have this view that like self-esteem is a bad thing and like the worse we feel, the more holy we are. But in fact, the opposite is true. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. What if you don't love yourself at all? What if you loathe yourself? What if you hate yourself? What if you're a perfectionistic person that can't forgive yourself for something that you've done? It's going to make loving your neighbor awfully difficult because wounded people wound people, hurt people hurt people. People that are judgmental and critical and bitter are people who, when they view themselves, feel very unacceptable and insecure. They go through life with a deficit mentality. And as a result, all that anger and suppressed rage just spills out on other people. There's a very clear connection between rage and shame. And so, no, I, having low self-esteem is not a good thing. It can actually be a very counteractive thing. Because the only reason we ever do anything wrong in life is because we feel insecure and defective. Think about it. You, you know, the only reason we ever do anything wrong in life at all is because of idolatry. And all idolatry is, is our, our way to try to secure a little bit of identity, a little bit of dignity, a little bit of way to cover my nakedness and my shame and the fact that I feel defective. That's all idolatry is. And the reason that we do just bad, sinful, stupid, rageful things is because inside our inner tape recorder says, I'm no good, nobody accepts me as I am, I'm defective, I'm inadequate, I'll never amount to anything, I'll never be successful in anything. No one wants my love, why would they want to be loved by me? Why do people want to be friends with me? Who am I to have friends? We, we have this inner tape recorder that constantly plays these negative thoughts over and over and over again. And if you trace any sin back, any sin at all, you trace it back to its root, you're going to find shame there saying, hey, remember me? I mean, whenever you see an embezzlement or even an affair, and you look at like what's behind that situation, it's always shame, always. You know, why, why does a guy who has nice house, nice car, nice wardrobe, uh, it, makes, it makes good money, why does he feel the need to like embezzle a bunch more money and steal it? from his, his employer. Why does he do that? The answer is shame. 
because I don't have enough yet. I'm not okay the way that I am. And if I had a little bit more, then I'd be acceptable. And this puts them on this ever-pursuing path of trying to feel adequate and like they matter. I mean, that, that's what happened in the case of, of Bernie Madoff. Dude was behind the biggest uh, fraud Ponzi scheme in, in world history. $64.8 billion he, he, he juked people out of. So he gets locked up, and the Financial Times sits down with him, and, and they interview him, and they're like, listen, Bernie, million-dollar question, right? But actually, the $64 billion question. They're like this, hey, why did you do what you do? Why, why did you do it? And he said this. He said, you have to understand my history. He said, I started with $500 in the bank, and I watched my father go bankrupt as a child. I was very driven but I was always outside the club. I was always outside the New York Stock Exchange and the white shoe firms. They fought me every step of the way. In other words, I, I was fighting, I was driven for my very identity. When he was a kid, his dad owned a sporting goods business and it went from, he went from riches to rags overnight. His dad's business collapsed and he was absolutely shamed and embarrassed and he said, I'm never going back there again. I'm never going to be on the outside again looking in. And so these white shoe firms, New York Stock Exchange, I'm going to show them, I'm going to show the world. And so I won't back down, Tom Petty said, because I can't back down. Because my very identity is resting upon it. What's behind the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world? Shame. Shame's at the center of it. Shame drove that. I mean, why, did, why, does, why does someone have an affair? And people say, well, it's about the sex. It's almost never about the sex. I, listen, I can tell you as a pastor, when you have to like reconcile a relationship in a marriage and you meet like the third party, the third wheel, some dude decides, you know, he's done and he's going to start stepping out. I can promise you, like nine times out of ten, the woman looks like Ursula from The Little Mermaid. You know the wicked evil witch, Ursula? I'm, I'm being dead serious. You know, personality, everything. And you're like, hold on a second, time out. You traded in that for that? It's like you traded in a 2018 Lexus with leather seats for a key with roll-down windows. What in the world were you thinking, Mel? But here's the thing, though. When you, talk, when you talk to the man and you're like, what's going on in your heart? Why did you do what you do? Why did you do what you did? He says this. This is the kind of things he says. He says, she understands me. She comes to my, my men's softball league and she actually is interested in my hobbies that my wife thinks are stupid and ridiculous. She doesn't nitpick me all day long. She accepts me for now just like I am. And so what's behind that is a man who's, who's not stepping out so much for the sex, he's stepping out for the shame. And that's why Larry Crabb, the psychologist as a Christian, said this. He said, nobody ever has an affair for the sex. They have an affair for their soul. Don't get me wrong, the sex is a bonus, right? But there's a deeper issue at stake here. There's a deeper issue here. It's shame. They're trying to feel that sense that I matter. At least I matter to someone. At least I matter to her. And so shame, I'd attest to you this morning this. Shame is the number one tool that Satan uses to get us to sin. Satan never tempts you by saying, hey, hey man, why don't you go over and kill that dude? It's not so overt. He's very crafty. He's very crafty. If he wants you to kill someone, he'll shame you into making killing him your only choice as you see it. That's exactly how he works. He's very crafty. And listen, he's been doing it since the beginning. That's exactly what our text this morning is all about in Genesis chapter 3. 
That's what Genesis chapter 3 is all about. Now, I'm sure a lot of us in here are familiar with Genesis 3, and, and you know we know the story of Adam and Eve, the first two human beings ever created. They're perfect. They're holy. They're made in the image of God. They have no sin whatsoever. They love obeying. Obedience feels like breathing to them. Disobedience feels like waterboarding to them. Okay, Being holy and doing what God wants feels right, and it feels natural to them. They're without sin. And in Genesis 2.25, the Holy Spirit tells us something very interesting about these two human beings. It says, The man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That's a very interesting choice of words for the Holy Spirit to use. I mean, why not tell us that they were holy and blameless and undefiled? Why, why, why naked and they weren't ashamed? It's a very interesting choice of words that the Holy Spirit used here. And the answer that, that, that I get when I read this text and what God has shown me is this. The reason why the Holy Spirit wants us to know that they were naked and they weren't ashamed is because that will be the very area where Satan will attack. And something I want to point out is, is this. When you read the Bible, the chapter divisions and the breaks, they're not inspired. Um, they were added later by Bible translators. And it's to help us. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It helps us navigate the Bible and it breaks the Bible into you know, easy and, and identifiable chunks. Right? That's why we have chapter divisions and paragraph divisions. I mean, otherwise, someone would say, hey man, what's your life first, bro? And you're like, hey, 30 pages in, middle of the page, says, ask for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That's, why, that's my life first. Instead of quoting Joshua 24, we would have no idea how to navigate the scripture. And so, you know, the people that translated the Bible came along and added these paragraph divisions for us. But what happens sometimes is we'll kind of like make a paragraph break or we'll see a paragraph break in our Bible where in the original Hebrew, there was no paragraph break. For example, in my ESV translation, this is the way this section appears. 225, right? Man and his wife are both naked. They're not ashamed. The fall. New thought. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It, it, it almost gives this impression like, you know, you're reading through the Bible and then you stop at the end of Gen Genesis chapter 2 and you pick up reading tomorrow in Genesis 3. And we kind of, we miss the connective tissue here between these sections. Now, allow me to get just a little bit more technical here, okay? You, you guys know, you, we go deep here. We need the scuba tank. The snorkel's not going to do it grace life. We go deep here, right? We're going to go deep. Allow me to get a little bit more technical, okay? The Hebrews, the scribes, the Old Testament Jewish scribes, also had paragraph breaks in their Bibles as well, their Hebrew Bibles. And it was for the same reason we have ours, to, to kind of break the Bible up and make it easier to read. But what's very interesting is this. The Hebrews had paragraph breaks and, and, and chapter divisions in different places than we do in our Bibles. So sometimes we see a new thought starting where the Hebrews didn't see a new thought starting. And this is one of those cases where when you take the Hebrew scriptures and lay them side by side with our English translations, in the Hebrew text, 25 goes right into 3.1. Same thought. They just continue reading. But in our Bibles, it's like it's starting a brand new thought here. And it, it kind of confuses us a little bit, I think. It's made this verse a little bit more mysterious than it should have been. Because in the Hebrew, a Jew would have read this portion of Scripture, and this is the way it would have read. 
It says this, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. But the serpent. That's the way it reads literally in Hebrew. But the serpent, but the snake, but Satan. The Hebrews would have read that, and it was like, all of a sudden, someone took a, like, like a clashing symbol and went, Ping! I mean, it's supposed to pierce your ears and grab you and say, listen, man and his wife were naked, but the snake was more crafty than any other beast of the, beast of the field. And so this is, this is showing, showing like a, a disjunctive idea here. This is supposed to shake you and rattle you and draw attention to this section because what the writer is trying to tell us, what the Holy Spirit is trying to show us is that Satan is going to attack in this very place. He's going to attack their nakedness, their vulnerability, and the fact that they're not ashamed at all. They're totally unself, they're not self-preoccupied at all. They're unselfconscious. They're going through life without a thought of how am I coming across? How am I coming across? How am I coming across? How do I look? How do, how do they think I look? They, they aren't feeling those feelings that are neurotic that cripple us. I mean, imagine the freedom of that. I don't have time to go into all that, but it's amazing to think about. That really was paradise. And so the way that Satan is going to make two perfect people fall who are holy is he's going to shame them. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to tap the brakes because I realize some of your heresy detectors just went off. Heresy Because you're thinking to yourself, how in the world is Satan going to shame Adam and Eve when they haven't sinned yet? It's a very good question. It's a very good question. And I would answer it this way. Shame is different than guilt. I think sometimes we oversimplify those things and we view them as being synonymous and the same and we think, yeah, guilty, shame, it's all the same. They're two different things. Uh, Pastor Tommy preached a sermon last year, and uh, it was called it was called actually a sermon called "Quiet Desperation," and he had a nugget in that sermon. This is what he said. He actually pointed this out in his sermon. He says, "Shame is not guilt. In the Bible, you will find shame about ten times more often than you find guilt. Guilt it lives in the courtroom before a judge. It says you have sinned, and you're responsible legally." The guilty person expects punishment and needs forgiveness. Shame, however, lives in the community before peers. It says you don't belong. You're unacceptable, unclean, and disgraced. The shamed person feels worthless, expects rejection, and needs fellowship, love, and acceptance. Guilt is this object. Guilt's a good thing. Guilt's this objective truth that says you have done wrong. You can go get that right. You've sinned in this area and you've fallen short. Guilt's the good thing. Shame says, I am wrong. I am flawed. I'm unacceptable. Shame is not always related to guilt. Sometimes it is. Oftentimes it's not. You can feel shame because you have a muffin top. You can can have shame for a lot of reasons that have nothing at all to do with your sin. You can be ashamed of where you live. I grew up in a really poor part of the land. And I was ashamed as a kid. I did. I grew up and we lived on the second floor and our floor would creak at night. So my parents would be like, be careful when you go to the bathroom at night because we've got people that live under us. I was ashamed of it. Is that my fault? Shame comes out a lot of different ways. There's shame by association, shame about body image, shame about your status economically. There's all kinds of things. And so shame is just that internal voice that says, I'm not enough, I'm unacceptable, I'm inadequate, I'm flawed, I'm unhuman. And that's exactly what Satan does to Eve. He shames her, even though she's perfect. 
and created in the very image of God, Satan basically gaslights her and says, you know what, you're lacking. You, I can't, the way you, listen, listen to what he says to her. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any tree, fruit of the trees in the garden, but the, God said you shall not eat of the fruit in the, of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And here it is. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Are you so naive you believe these things? Are you crazy? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Time out. She already was like God. She was created in the very image of God. So was Adam. They're little images of God running around. They are like God already. And yet Satan says, you're not like God yet. You're unacceptable the way you are. And God wants to keep you weak and needy because he doesn't want you to eat from that tree because if you ate from that tree, then you'd be like him. He shames her. He shames her. He introduces into their minds doubt about their own acceptability. And he basically says to Eve, God's holding out on you. And I feel bad that you're so naive, you actually believe his lies, that you're perfect and that you're acceptable and to trust him. I'm, I feel bad for you, and I really want to help you out. If you took a bite of that tree over there, I'll tell you what, then you'd matter. Then you'd be acceptable. Then you'd have some dignity to show for yourself. In other words, Satan says, you're not acceptable the way that you are. And so that's how Satan tempts Adam and Eve. And listen, as I said, this was such a lie because when you think about Adam and Eve, they were perfect, they were sinless, they're created in the very image of God. They are image bearers of God. But Satan gaslights them and says, you're not like God yet, you're not acceptable yet. And so he shames them to doubt their current level of acceptability. And here's the thing, Eve fell for it. She fell for it. Because of what she does next shows that she was vulnerable. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Why else would a perfect human being take fruit from a tree unless they felt inadequate, insufficient? The doubt that Satan used on her worked because all of a sudden she feels like, you know what, I'm not enough the way that I am. And you know what, this pair will make me adequate. And so if you ever wonder how in the world could two perfect human beings fall into sin, Satan used shame. He used shame. They were already perfect, but they didn't believe it. They were created perfect, but they did not believe it. And so she takes the fruit to make up for her inadequacy. Kurt Thompson, has a, he's written a book on, on shame, and it's called The Soul of Shame. It's very profound. And he's got this quote. It says, all sin, all idolatry, all coping strategies in which I indulge myself are ways for me to satiate my hunger for relationship, my longing to be known and loved, and my desire to be desired. That's all they are. We use all sorts of things, idols, to make ourselves feel adequate. And shame is the root cause that's behind our sin. And that is exactly where Satan attacks. That is why I believe shame is Satan's number one tactic in getting people to stumble, both Christians and non-Christians. 
Because listen, shame is a very powerful tool in spiritual warfare because Satan's name literally means the accuser. That's what his name means. And that's why in scripture you always find him accusing people, trying to make them discontent. He's like a commercial. He's pointing out your flaws. You know, hey, you need some of this. You know, you need some of that. You really could use some of that. That hairline is going. Whatever it is, he's shaming people into doing things that they think they need to matter. You see him in the book of Revelation. It says this, Revelation 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been cast down. Who is Satan? He's the accuser of the brothers, the people that are saved, Christians, saying, hey, you don't belong here, man. God's not going to forgive that. Are you kidding me? I can tell you as a pastor, the reason that keeps a lot of people in bondage and drives them to bondage in idols, addictions, credit card debt, whatever it is, a shame, I can tell you right now, I spent a lot of years in ministry when I started off trying to make relationships with people and I thought they were rejecting me and it took me a long time to figure out they're not rejecting me, they don't feel worthy to have a relationship with me. And so you're holding out Facebook you know, requests or you're holding out emails or you're making phone calls or you're texting and you're saying, hey, let's get together for lunch, hey, let's get together and do that. I spent half my life trying to reach out to people and it took me a long time to understand when they don't respond, when they don't come back for counseling, when they don't come back to church. It's not because they're rejecting me. I thought that for a long time. I thought, why am I inadequate? Why can't I reach them? Why can't I be the difference? It took me a long time before I discovered, you know what, it's not about me, it's about them. They feel inadequate. They feel unacceptable. They feel unloved. That's what makes them so hypersensitive. The minute they feel any kind of rejection, they're gone. They're like a bass fish, bro. You had your chance and they're off the hook now, they're gone. But shame uses that. Shame whispers in our ear, who are you to join that church? You don't belong there. All your kids are hooked on Oxycontin. You don't have anything in common with those folks. What are you going to do? Go to a home group and confess? They're not like you. You're different. Who are you to lead a home group? Yeah, you want to do new ministries. I understand that. But who are you? Who would want to come to your home group? Who would want to be loved by you? That's what Satan whispers in our ear. And he crushes our Christian walk. He crushes us. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And I'll tell you this, we won't take any risks in loving people, we won't take any risks in ministry, if Satan is constantly whispering in our ear shameful things and we believe it. If we think, you know what, I did want to start a home group, but you know, who am I to start a home group? I'm not smart enough, I don't know the Bible enough, I'm certainly not like Tommy, I mean, he knows the Bible really well, who am I, and I'm not personable enough, my house is not clean enough, why even do hospitality, I mean, there's a sock over there, you know what, you know what I'm saying? Can I get a witness? You know what I'm saying? It's where we live. It's even shameful to talk about. Everything's about shame. Why did we clap for two of the four worship songs? Because we're waiting for someone else to start clapping because I don't want to be the only one clapping because that'd be awfully shameful. I'm getting too much into this Christianity thing. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy, right? Shame. It governs us. It cripples us. It drives us into isolation. I'm telling you right now, the people that don't want a relationship with you it's not so much about you, it's about them. And what this world needs to see is people that are strong enough and rooted in the gospel enough to press forward through those barriers and reach people in love and draw them back in. And if we are so hypersensitive and ticky-tacky that we get our feelings hurt when we're trying to reach out to a shame-based world where everything's airbrushed, even the freaking magazine covers when you're going to the grocery store, we live in a perfectionistic culture, 
if, you, if we don't have the gospel identity to actually have some long-suffering perseverance, we're not going to make a dent. Because I'll tell you right now, we live in a shame-laden culture, a perfectionistic culture. Kids are dual-enrolled, and they're still blowing their stinking brains out. It's shame. That's what the devil does. Wife serves you divorce papers, it's better just to end it now. It's better if I wasn't here. They'd probably be better off if I wasn't on this earth. I'd just think I put a gun to my head and blow my... That is what the devil wants you to believe. That no one loves you, you're not acceptable. And if you weren't here, it'd actually be better. That's his lie. And I think it's so important when we look at verses like this. We have to remember, guys, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And I know in churches like ours that take the Bible seriously and, and we're conservative theologically, I think sometimes Satan is portrayed as like the master of like false assurance and he's like he spends all his time trying to convince unbelievers that they're saved. I've heard that a lot in my Christian life. That makes no sense. I don't read any verses in the Bible where it says Satan likes to tempt people to believe that God's too gracious and loving. I don't read that anywhere. That doesn't even make sense at all. What, what, what is that about? It's like even our idea of Satan is whacked out. He loves that too. He's like, that's right, Satan. I'm the author of false assurance. I want you to believe that God's so gracious and loving that he'll forgive you for anything. That's ridiculous. Satan does not want to give false assurance to non-Christians. He wants to rob true Christians of assurance. That's what he's called the accuser of the brethren. And so you never see Satan tempting people by saying, listen, God's so good. He's so gracious. Go ahead. He always tempts people by saying, you know what? God won't forgive you. You know how disgusting that is? You're not like them. You only read the Bible 15 minutes a day. Who are you to do anything in the Christian life? Who are you? Who are you? That's what Satan does. You know, the, the, the Puritans knew this. You know, Isaac Watts, you know, before the throne, says when Satan tempts me to, not presumption, but despair. He tells me of the guilt within, and upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. You think about what are the wiles and the tactics of Satan? What's his tactic? It's shame. It's shame. Satan wants you to feel. And this is going to sound like Joel Osteen. I get it. Satan wants you to feel, though, like you're failing the Christian life. Because if he can make you feel like you're failing the Christian life, he'll crush your Christian life. And what ticks me off, I think, it just makes me upset... So many people in America that are Christians want Christianity to be, they, they speak of Christianity like it's this easy thing, like it's as easy as one, two, three. It's just easy steps and you're a great Christian and everyone's victorious and everyone's always living the victorious Christian life and you get saved and all that washes off, all your sin and then you're great. It's like, is there any reality here, bro? Is there any struggle here? This is a series called Spiritual Warfare. It's a battle. It's not a cruise. The Christian life is not a cruise. And so if you're struggling in the Christian life, it's not because you're a pansy or uncommitted, it's because you're a human being. Someone needs to stand up and say that instead of, oh, you know, if you're struggling, it's just because you haven't mastered it yet like I have. It's ridiculous. And we give off the impression, I know a lot of times we don't realize this, we give off this aura, my friend calls it religious funk, is what he calls it. It's a guy in my church in, 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 uh, on Beachside, he's, he's a great guy. But he, he's got long dreadlocks and he, he feels the, the stink eye from church people and he's like, that's religious funk over there, he feels it, you know. But so often we give off this religious funk and we communicate either verbally or non-verbally that Christianity and the church is this mistake-free zone. It should be, it's almost like we assume that the Christian life is a mistake-free life and if you're messing up really bad, it's because you're doing something wrong. 
And it's like, no, how about this? How about Satan loves that view of the Christian life? Because if we don't realize it's a battle, then when we do fall, we're going to loathe ourselves, we're going to hate ourselves, and we're basically not going to come back to church anymore because who's going to understand my struggle anyway? None of those people struggle. All their kids are great. None of their kids are hooked on Oxycontin. We need to know ahead of time what Satan's strategies are because, listen, he will use shame to crush us. He'll crush our love. He'll crush our vulnerability. If we're so afraid of being rejected by people that we never open up and press into community, whether in a home group or whether in a church or whether in an evangelistic relationship, if we don't have the gospel identity, if we don't feel secure enough, not only not to have our own barriers, but if we're not strong enough to break through their barriers or the person we're trying to reach, we're done. We might as well close up shop. Because Christianity is not going to continue to move and grow, and it's going to play right into the devil's hands. i got to keep moving here, okay? Because I, I, I can just keep going here. Um, but the devil wants to shame us into sin, okay? So here's the question this morning. Here's why you came. How can, how can we conquer shame? How can we conquer shame? Whether it's related to our sin or it's not related to our sin, how do we conquer it? Well, there's a right way and a wrong way, okay? Right way and a wrong way. We see both in this text. First of all, the wrong way to cover your shame and to deal with it is by trying to deal with it on your own and running away from God. That's what a lot of people do. I'm just going to get alone. You know what? I don't need to go. I just need some time alone with the Lord. You don't need any more time alone with the Lord, okay? You need time in community. You need to press in and be vulnerable. You need to let people know what's going on in your life. But so often, it's what we do. We run and we cover ourselves with our fig leaves and we hide from each other and we hide from God. That's what happened. Their eyes were opened, they got some fig leaves. They tightened things up so they weren't so vulnerable. That's what it means when it says they were naked. It's not anything about perversity. It's about being vulnerable and open and being who you are as God made you and not being ashamed of it. That's what nakedness means. It doesn't mean perversion. What they did is they took that vulnerability that says, here's who I am and all of my fullness, and I'm not worried about you rejecting me, and oh, if we could just wrap our heads around that, how powerful we would be. If we didn't live our entire lives so neurotic about how we're coming across, how much more could we actually love people? But what happens is they ran, they covered, and they hid, and they ran from God. And they tried to do something on their own to make themselves acceptable. They basically tried to cover their own shame with their own works, okay? This is what Brene Brown calls hustling to cover our shame. She says, how do you cover your shame? A lot of us hustle for it. And so what we do is we try to be, you know, successful in business, we try to have the perfect family, be the perfect parent. We try to have the perfect body, maybe. Maybe you're a workout fanatic and you're a gym rat. Whatever it is, we hustle for worthiness. I've got this shame and I feel insecure, so I hustle for it. And a lot of times it has nothing at all to do with God. We actually run from Him so we can pursue more of our covering. And you know what? This is ultimately doomed to failure because here's the deal. When you use anything other than God to cover your weakness, it's always going to backfire because here's the deal. What happens when your business collapses and fails? They all do. Toys R Us just shut its doors, right? Whoever thought that was going to come, right? Just a matter of time. What happens when your kids go off the rails even though you're an amazing parent and you do everything right? You train up a child in the way he should go, and when he gets old, he freaking goes off the reservation. What do you do then? What happened? And, I, and listen, I know when I say that, some people are like, well, my kids are going to be different. Listen, I've met with a lot of Christian parents that are awesome parents, and their kids just decided, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing this Christian thing. What happens when your body fails you? 
I got a guy in my church, he's a professional arm wrestler. He broke his arm in competition two years ago. Devastated. What happens when your workout fanatic regime that you used to cover your shame fails you? Then what happens? What happens is this. If you're covering yourself with anything other than God, when that fails you, you're going to want to kill yourself. You're going to be devastated when that's taken away. And so running from God and hustling for worthiness will never work because nothing other than God can ever truly cover our shame. And so there's a wrong way to try to cover our shame. And listen, their shame was compounded, first of all, because they they felt like they weren't inadequate. Then they sinned. Then they really were inadequate. It was like compounded. Now they feel immense shame. Now they totally feel like they have to hide. Now their shame is related to their sin. And I'll say this. If two perfect human beings were shamed into sinning, how much more tempted are we as imperfect, flawed human beings to be shamed and to further sin, idolatry. I mean, Satan has all kinds of true baggage to throw at us. He just made stuff up with Adam and Eve. But a lot of us, we run and we we hustle for our covering. And that's the wrong way to do it. The right way is to run to God and let him cover us. That's what we see in verse 21. It says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and he clothed them what's that mean it means this god had to take off those fig leaves and say "Uh, this is not going to work i have to be the one to cover you and so god who had every right there to kill them judge them draws near in vulnerability draws near to the very people that just scorned him he goes looking for them he breaks through their barriers and he goes after them, and he basically, he doesn't chastise them, he clothes them. He doesn't shame them, like, man, how dare you do that? Are you kidding? All the stuff I've done for you, are you kidding me? You're going to steal my car at 11 at night after everything I've done for you? Are you kidding me? He comes to them, he, 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 he woos them back, and he covers them. And listen, when we see the vulnerability and the covering of God, what we see here is a foretaste of the gospel, because this is a perfect picture of the gospel. Because what happens on the cross is God condescending, taking on flesh, and becoming vulnerable for us so that he could clothe us. That's what it's about. On the cross, Jesus was not exactly, he was not only dying for our sin, he was actually, he was taking care of all of our shame. Amen. If we really believed it, Carolyn, we would all be saying hallelujah because here's the deal. Every time the God, this should be a pep rally because think about it, our shame is gone. He was perfect. I mean, he was perfect and that's how God sees us now. We're perfect in his eyes. And think about it, for us to be perfect, Jesus had to not only get rid of our guilt, he had to take our shame too. And listen, on the cross, Jesus bore our shame. That's why you can't even hardly find like an accurate picture of the gospel because people that were crucified were naked and we don't dare want to show Jesus as naked. That's too humiliating. That's too embarrassing. That's too shameful. Listen, that's how it happened. On the cross, people were stripped naked and humiliated and crucified. And when you think about it, Jesus' life was one of bearing shame. He came, he made himself vulnerable. He came to his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. He was their king, and they crucified him. And above his head said, the king of the Jews, in mocking form. Here's our king. We killed him. You talk about shame. You talk about people calling you names. How would you like to be the creator of everything and be the ultimate source of good and be called evil? 
How would you like to be the author of life and truth and be called a blasphemer that needs to be put to death? How would you like that? Imagine the shame he bore in our place. And why did he do it? Why in the world would he climb on that cross and be stripped naked and die and be crucified by sinners? Why would he do that? Hebrews 12 tells us we've got to go there. We have to go there. Listen, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? Hit me, baby. For the what? Who, who is, what's the joy talking about? You. You're his joy. You're his joy. Jesus gladly absorbed the shame because of the joy set before him. You're the joy set before him. You're the joy set before him. What was the cross about? I know sometimes we're like, it was for the glory of God. Amen. It is for the glory of God. But God gets great glory out of saving sinners. God actually wants a relationship with us. He wants to redeem us. And he had a decision to make in eternity past. I can judge them and show my glory, or I can come down and be treated like a criminal and stripped naked in front of all of them and die for their shame and get glory. I think I'll choose that path. Mind equals blown. This is a God that we have a hard time wrapping our eyes around. That's why Luther said this. Martin Luther said, God is seen most clearly in the cross. That's where he's seen at his most clearest. We love to think of the high and mighty God in heaven that rules on a throne and never bows to anyone. But I'll tell you this. God is seen most clearly when he came down and willingly allowed himself to be stripped naked and killed. And we have, we have such a hard time with this, friends, because here's the deal. We don't see unconditional love here in this world. Even our best relationships, even our closest relationships aren't with unconditional love. They're just not. Let's be honest. I mean, I'll give you an example. If I lock my dog and my wife in the trunk of my car for an hour, only one's going to be happy to see me when I open the trunk, okay? <laughs> and it's the one that unconditionally loves me, Right? That's how a dog is. You lock him in the trunk, he's fine. <laughs> I'm glad you're back, you know? You can lock that sucker in the trunk every day for a month. He's happy every time you open the trunk. You do that more than two times. I don't, Tommy, what's our quota for locking wives in the trunk? Is it two, two times? You do that a couple times, your marriage is over, you know? I'm just kidding. We, we've never had that yet. But Someone's going to come forward and say, you were speaking to me, you know, right? It always happens. Hey, there's no shame here. If that's you, come up. Um, but here's the deal. That's, that's the closest we have to unconditional love is that dog. And I know some people, you're like, are you saying that, that God is like a dog and, and, and he's letting these puny human beings like lock him in a trunk? I'm not saying that. I'm saying something worse than that. I'm saying God came to earth and was stripped naked and killed on a cross, which is far worse than anything that we've done to a dog or to a wife. The king of glory was called evil. The man with the most integrity that's ever lived, his integrity was called into question. And that ticks us off and people that do us. Imagine being God and having that thrown in your face. We have no idea the amount of shame that Jesus suffered on the cross, but he did it for us. Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed. That's the gospel. And so those animal skins back in Genesis 3 were a picture and a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they were. And, and, and God... Amen, Miss Margarita. God did it gladly. And here's the thing. How do, how do you conquer shame? You've got to soak yourself. You've got to like literally press the gospel into the unevangelized parts of your soul because your heart is so wired to hustling for worthiness that when a declaration 
of one-way unconditional love comes your way from a God that's all-powerful and mighty and has the power to do you great harm. When you hear a message that says, it's been finished, it's paid in full, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, there's a part of us that doesn't quite believe that. And so we've got to press the gospel deep into our hearts.